as you turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We continue through the book of Mark, a series that has uh, turned our focus directly on Jesus. Um, the gospel originally written to believers undergoing persecution in Rome who needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this Jesus, whom they were being persecuted for, whom some of them were giving their life for, this Jesus was really who he said he was and did really what they said he did. Same thing we need to know today. Like we need to know that what we're believing in is not just an old fairy tale. It's not something long ago that other people use, but it, it's real. It happened. And um, God has graciously preserved the scriptures, revealed himself through the scriptures. And so we have this ancient document that, um, compared to other ancient documents, has the strongest evidence for its accuracy, its authenticity, its reliability, so that we know when we study the Gospel of Mark in 2016, we have full confidence that it was the Gospel of Mark that the believers in Rome read. Same book, same letter, same message. Different language, but the same message. And what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, forgiving sin, casting out demons, confronting religious hypocrites, teaching through parables, calling disciples to follow him, healing the sick, and showing his supreme authority. And we're going to see more and more of that as we continue through Mark. But what he does today, he hasn't done yet. And that's his supremacy and power over nature. So see today this text, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has supreme power over the storms we face so we can confidently trust him and rest. Beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, we are grateful for your word. So grateful that as your people we have full access to understand, to study, to, to grasp your revelation, so we can know you, we can be transformed by you, we can follow you, we can share your love with others so clearly. So we ask that you would come at this time and illuminate your word, that your spirit would come and take your word and imprint it even deeper into our hearts so that we, your people, will be even more transformed, more empowered, more repentant, more humble more bold to go and be the people you've created us to be. Holy Spirit, come and do this work for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing to notice about the story is the realness of it, the fact that, that the power of Jesus is real. I mean, frankly, when you think about what this looked like and what it could have looked like, it sounds like something created by CGI. You've got this incredible storm. 
that just instantaneously stops. Like, you don't see this happen. Uh, I, love to, I love to be in storms, to watch storms, not like out in them, but on, the, on a porch, on a carport, lightning, thunder, wind, rain. You feel the power, you feel the coolness, you feel all the aspects of these storms. And all the storms I've sat and watched, I've never seen one just, just cut off, like a faucet. Instantly there's calm. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Even as the storm moves out, there's still this, this continuation of waves, a continuation of the effects as the winds die down. And, and this power that Jesus demonstrated is real power. And we see this through all the incredible details that Mark provided. Mark's version is replete with eyewitness characteristics that could only have been given by people who were there. And they would only be details, be details given by people who were there. The, the, the hour of the day, verse 35, the reference that the disciples took Jesus from the boat in which he was sitting. The presence of other boats in verse 36. The boat's drawing water on itself, verse 37. Jesus sleeping on the cushion, Verse 38, the rebuke of Jesus. This story inspired by the Holy Spirit to Mark, written through the eyes of Peter, someone who was there. And this event was just burned into his memory. And he gave all these details that only an eyewitness could give. And we all do that. Like we have big important days in our life where you can remember just amazing details because that day was so vivid to us. And so when you think about that day, you either have these snapshots running through your mind or maybe like a video reel running through your mind of all the things that happened on that day. The day that Sarah was born. The day Jennifer and I were married, 9-11. Anytime we have a snow day in North Louisiana, like I can remember all the details of that day because it's so vivid. Uh, vacations that we've taken as a family. When LSU beat Duke and J.J. Reddick to go to the Final Four, you remember all of these days, the vivid memories. You can remember tons of details, not because there's pictures on Facebook, but because you were there and Peter was there. And Mark puts us there in the boat with all these details so that we can have great confidence that this amazing, unfathomable, incredible story, it happened. It happened. And the God who created all things has stepped into the story to make himself known that he has real power for real problems. He is not distant. He is not aloof. He's here. He's with us in the boat. Um, secondly, his power is divine. According to verse 36, they took Jesus just as he was, the same boat that he had just been using to teach the parables that we looked at over the last several weeks to the, the crowd on the, on, the, on the side of the Sea of Galilee. They just sat down in the boat, turned around, and took off across the Sea of Galilee. The boats of that day looked something like, like that. Um, they, would be, um, they actually dug up one of these in 1986. Uh, the remains of one, what, what could be a remain from one, you can Google it and look it up yourself. These boats would have a single mast that could hold a sail for when the wind was up and they could sail, but they also could hold oars when the wind was down and they needed to row, and they could seat about 10 or 15 people, but they weren't huge, very small kind of boat. And Jesus had been sitting in this boat, speaking to the crowds, the parables in, in, in chapter 4, and now he turns around to go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a unique lake for many reasons. It's a rather small sea. In fact, it's no longer called a sea today. It's a Lake Kinneret or Lake Tiberias. It's only about 13 by 18 miles in length and width. It lies 700 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by hills and sometimes mountains like Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet above sea level. So it's kind of like a bowl surrounded by these hills and mountains. And so on one end, you've got Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level with all the cold air that, that circulates in uh, elevation colliding with this lake that's 700 feet below sea level and the warm humidity that comes off of the lake and when the, the cold air from the mountain passes over and collides with the warm air coming up from the lake, what do you have? Storms. Storms. Good. Good job in the back. Bright student back there. 
you have storms. And sometimes very, very violent storms, depending on how cold it is and how hot it is, like in the winter and the summer, when the temperature differences are the greatest. And so this is what they were experiencing, something that all fishermen on this sea would experience from time to time, which is what you see in verse 37. A great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was filling up with water. But Jesus is asleep. Fishermen would have a head cushion in their boats when they would have all-night fishing trips, give, a, give everybody a turn to take a, a rest and a sleep. It's a wonderful picture of the humanity of Jesus. He's just exhausted, like worn out. I, I'm taking a nap, guys. You get us across the lake. Completely exhausted, not apparently aware of the storm raging around him, not apparently aware of the storm that's raging inside the disciples. Verse 38 tells us they are scared to death. He was in the stern asleep, and they woke him and said, Don't you care that we're dying? Like, how bad does a storm have to be for these experienced veteran fishermen to feel like they're dying? Some think that as many as seven of twelve the disciples, seven of the twelve disciples were fishermen. They had a career on the lake. They knew the sea. This is a sea that's so bad they think they're perishing. And so they call out to Jesus. Good thing. They accuse him of not caring. Eh, not so good, guys. Not so good. And Jesus awakes, and with all the authority of the one who's created everything in all of creation, speaks calmness into chaos. Peace, be still. Interesting word used by Mark when he writes it, Jesus rebuked the wind in verse 39. It's a word that was often used when Jesus was rebuking demons and commanding them to leave people or commanding demons to keep quiet when they would leave someone. So this is a, was this just a regular storm that popped up from time to time on the Sea of Galilee, or was there a demonic origin to this storm? I've seen arguments for both. Whether it was demonic in origin, that Satan had roused up this storm to, to kill Jesus while he's asleep in this boat, or whether it was just a normal storm that was just happened to be very intense, whatever the case, it's an amazing miracle and demonstration of power in that Jesus brings it completely under control. Again, sometimes people can't believe that this happened. We've all been in storms. We've seen them. How does this just stop like this? How could this? There must be a natural explanation like you know, another wind blew through and blew the storm and the clouds out of the way. And the disciples just looked back on it and were like, oh man, I think like it was coincidental. Like right when Jesus said that, this wind came in and began to blow the storm away and the waves eventually died down. But then if that were the case, why would they worship him as God? Why were they then terrified? Something happened that these veteran seamen, these fishermen had never seen that made them so afraid, even more afraid of Jesus after he calmed the storm that they looked at him, worshipped him as God because he had demonstrated a power they had never experienced. He had done something that only God can do. This is divine power, which leads to divine rebuke. Verse 40, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I believe the, the rebuke of Jesus in verse 40 about their lack of faith is twofold. First, they failed to believe him when he told them in verse 35, Let's go to the other side. That's the plan, fellas. Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He told them the plan. Why would they think they were going to die before they got to the other side? 
How many times have they already seen the word of Christ produce exactly what he said it would produce? I mean, they've seen this guy do amazing miracles already. And he gets in the boat, so let's go to the other side. Why would they doubt that? His plans work out perfectly. How could they quickly forget? But the second part of the rebuke is the fact that they questioned his care for them. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They failed to see the compassion behind his power. That somehow Jesus was so uncaring that he would simply just let them die. Instead of acting to show them compassion and care. Like we can put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus a little bit. A little bit. Thinking about children that we have loved and raised from the moment of conception, through birth, through infancy, through toddlerhood, through childhood, just the hours of sweat and blood and tears, it feels like, to love them, to serve them, to care for them, to, to, to foster a healthy environment for them, the hours of sleepless nights, the investment of financial resources to, to, to get them well when they're sick. And this, this, this goes on, and they don't have a clue for years, not a clue that you're doing all this, right? And then they get to a certain age, and sometimes they might look at you and say something like, you know, you're not being fair. You love them more than you love me. You don't love me. Not that we've heard any of this in our home. I'm just saying. And, and they don't know the 10 million things that you've done that you would give your life for them. How could they question your love? How could they question your care? Like, I, I remember saying stuff like this to my mom, and I would wonder, why does my dad want to kill me now? And now I get it. Like, how dare I say that, something like that to my mom? And so you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of Jesus. Like, how can you question my care for you? Do you, do you know all that I've done? Do you know all that I've come to do? And they, they didn't. It's part of them learning who he is. This could have been the point where Jesus just threw all 12 of them out of the boat. Just let them drown. I'll get 12 more. Got 12 more guys. As soon as I land, I'll pick new guys. But that's not Jesus. He's gracious. He's patient. He calms the storm. He rebukes them. And he subsequently creates a new storm, not a storm at sea, but a storm inside of them. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word for fear in verse 41 is a word that means scared, afraid. They, they want to run away. When Jesus asked them in verse 40, he uses a different word that means timid or cowardly. Why are you being so timid and cowardly? Don't you have faith? Verse 41 we're so terrified, we want to get out of the boat. We'd rather be in the sea, away from this storm that's in the boat, this man who has power over the storm. This kind of fear that makes them want to run from the presence of God. Who then is this man who can do such things? They're learning, right? This explains the rebuke. They don't know. They don't fully grasp. Or else they would have demonstrated faith and not fear. And so they respond in terror. Which is actually, if you know the scriptures, the proper biblical response when you know for a fact you're in the presence of God. Like, I shouldn't be here. God is here. His presence is thick. I should be dead. This is too much. And this is how God's people always react. When I first began pastoring 13 years ago, I remember uh, hearing and reading people talking about the difference between this big view, this scary view of God, this holy, reverent view of God, and, and then the closeness of God, how how close God is to us, how imminent God is. 
And, and throughout church history, you know, people were talking about this pendulum swinging back and forth where we overemphasize the bigness of God and then we'd, we'd overemphasize the closeness of God. You could even see it in church architecture when they build church buildings very high and vertical. So not only would you be drawn up, but they were very big so that you'd, be, you'd realize how small you are compared to the bigness of God. To, to then later church architecture where everything was kind of flattened out. And so the speaker wasn't above the people, but the speaker was out among the people on the same level as the people. In fact, we had discussions when we started using this building. Should we preach from down here or should we preach from up here? And we didn't want to preach from down there. That's just too close. So we kind of compromised and built this. Get somewhere in the middle. And we can continue to have these debates and try to figure out what's the right place to be whenever you're proclaiming God's word. But, but all these things are trying to get a, a handle on what's the proper view of God. Because God is big and amazing and awe-inspiring, but God is also right here with us. And, and so the, the correct position is in all theological truths is this tension between usually two things. Like we should have a big, amazing view, holy, reverent view of God who is right here with us all the time. Like you can see this personified in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. He's in heaven. He fills heaven. All the heavens are, are in his hand. He's that big. But he's our father. He's our father. We can pray to this God who's this big as our father. And so we have to keep this proper balance between the bigness of God and the closeness of God. He's not so big that he's inaccessible. But he's not so accessible, like the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy, that we, we don't reverence him. We don't have an awe for him. We keep the proper balance. I think that if we got one thing more than the other as a crossing church, we'd probably get the closeness, the eminence of God more than anything else. Talking about God as Father is very common to our language. And probably where the Holy Spirit needs to do work on us is to get this big picture of God. Like what if God's spirit, what if God's presence fell on one of our worship gatherings in a way where it was thick, tangible, where we were a little bit afraid to be here. Like God, God is here and it's so big and tangible and real and powerful. I don't, I don't know. Like I remember like as over the years, pastoring and being in meetings where you're praying for the Spirit of God to be so powerful, people are convic- convicted of sin, repenting of sin and believing the gospel. And then I would think to myself as I'm praying for these things and wanting these things to happen in these worship gatherings, like, what if he shows up? What am I going to do? Like, what if people did just start repenting and weeping and calling out for forgiveness in the aisle like they've done in times past? Like, I don't know what I would do. Maybe I don't really want that. Maybe I should be careful about praying for that. It's scary, right? But it's a good scary. Have you had an encounter with God like that in your life? Where God was that tangible and his power was that real that you were a little afraid. You were, you were overwhelmed. Whether it be corporately or individually, the presence of God was so vivid, you, you had this terror or maybe this just this awe. Like I'm convinced that some of us have had that. And I, and I hesitate to share some of my experiences because mine were mostly individual and they're very personal. God meeting me at a, a time where I really needed him and a storm I was in and he revealed himself in very powerful ways, not anything crazy but just very mighty ways with the truth of his word and the spirit of God just, just sticking it deep in my heart where I remember those times. I remember those days very vividly. So I hesitate to, to share that because that, that may not be your experience. But you've had an experience or 
Maybe you desire that kind of experience with the presence of God. I think it's good, I believe it's good to long for that, to seek for that, to pray for that. We need moments in our life where we are speechless in the presence of an awe-inspiring God. Where His holiness and His glory are so bright, His power is so tangible, we don't know what to say. We're overwhelmed. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not something we would try and manufacture. If we ever did try and manufacture it, please come pull us out of here by the, the collar of our shirts. Can't set the lights just right or play the right music to try and make it happen. But we can humble ourselves, repent of our sins, and trust the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the will of God to bring us corporately to a place where we are amazed at the presence of God. It's thick. So how do we respond to this Jesus who has this storm-stopping power unlike anything anyone else has ever experienced or demonstrated? So imagine that you're one of the original hearers of this text. You're a Christian in Rome. You've watched your fellow believers go through horrible persecution at the hands of this crazy Emperor Nero. Maybe you've lost family and friends to the wild animals in the Colosseum, or maybe you've had family and friends stuck on poles and, and covered with oil and lit on fire because they're Christians. You're wondering if you're next. How do you hear this story? Or just where you're sitting here today in this room on June the 12th, 2016, what storm are you in that is tempting your faith in Jesus to be shaken? That is tempting you to look to your Father in heaven and say, Don't you care about me? Do you realize what I'm going through? Are you just going to sit there and do nothing? You're just going to sleep while I'm in this storm? Jesus has power, clearly. And we can totally trust his power is real, it's divine, it's compassionate, and it's so powerful at times it's terrifying. So our response, what is our response? First, we will face storms. You have to know we will face storms. It's like a well-worn phrase that you probably have heard in other sermons on this passage. You're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or headed into a storm. You, you've got to know the deepest part of your being because there are people out there on television and other churches who are teaching you that you might not face storms. If you have enough faith, if you give enough money to their ministry, you might not go through storms. You don't have to go through storms. No, you will face storms. They're coming. Because we live in a sin-cursed world until the king returns and makes all things new or until we die and go to him, we will be in storms. I don't remember where I read it, but someone wrote how much emotional energy we waste because we're surprised by the storm rather than responding biblically to the storm. We get in a situation that's kind of a storm. You're in it and you're just like, well, I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe I'm in this situation. How could this happen? You're in it. Deal with it biblically instead of being surprised that God would allow you to go through it. He, he, you're in it. He's allowed you to go through it. Trust your father that he would only allow you to go through it if it's for your good and his glory. But then begin to respond biblically and in, in, in a way that glorifies Christ. Don't be surprised when you're in the storm. Storm, you know one is always coming. He ordains them. He uses them. He plans them for our good. Not that he is the agent of evil that could cause our storms. Not that he's the agent of sin that could cause our storms. But they, sin and evil already exist. It's in this world. 
We have a God who is so sovereign, he can even has control over those things to use them to shape us and shape us, our, our walk with him for his purposes and his glory. Like I grew up thinking that we live as Christians in this little protective bubble. I didn't know I had that thought. I didn't know that's what my thinking was until it was later exposed. But when it was exposed, I just kind of looked back on my life and, and realized I didn't know if I really believed that bad things happened to, to Christians. I don't ever remember anybody explicitly teaching that, like, you know, son, daughter, you know, son, or whoever's talking to me. Nobody would call me daughter, obviously, but um, <laughs> bad things aren't going to happen to you because you're a Christian. You got this, like, invisible shell. Nobody ever said that. It's just like a deduction. Because of the, the home that I grew up in, it was mostly happy, healthy. It was great. Like, the most tragic thing I remember happening as a kid was when my grandfather died when I was eight years old, and he was in his 70s. So, eight year old, seven years old, that's what old people do. They die. I didn't really think it was a shock. Our girl breaking up with me. Our girl not going out with me. Or something stupid I did and I got caught and got in trouble. Like that was the hardest things I went to through as a kid. And I'm thankful. Like don't hear me saying I'm not thankful for that home I grew up in. I loved it. It was good. Still love to be around our family. But if my parents could have done one thing different, which we're trying to do with our kids, is we don't, we don't want to shield them from the hard and difficult things that that they were experiencing because they were experiencing hard things. They just kind of kept it from us. As I got old enough in age-appropriate ways, let me in, you know. Uh, we struggled mightily to make it financially on a pastor's salary and four kids. So let's pray about that as a family and then watch God provide as he always did. My dad dealt with all kinds of difficult church members. Let's pray for that as a family and then learn to love difficult people because every church has them, even the crossing. But that protective Christian bubble for me wasn't burst until I graduated high school. Something very tragic and evil happened to a good friend of mine. And all of a sudden I was hit in the face with this reality that bad things can happen to Christians. And God doesn't always protect us from all the evil in the world. God is amazingly gracious so that our world doesn't look like Purge. It's a stupid movie that has come out, thankfully. He's incredibly gracious to the believer and non-believer. That is not just chaos all the time. He's protecting us in 10 million ways we're not even aware of. But that doesn't mean he always protects us from everything. He graciously, with wisdom, brings us through storms. So don't be surprised. People we love are going to die. People we love are going to get sick. Not everything that we want or desire in life is going to happen. Life sometimes stinks, and it's hard, and it's hurtful. Now, not, now, we shouldn't seek out storms, right? Sometimes we have this faulty view of sanctification that only bad things will sanctify us. So we should always do the hard thing because it's good for our sanctification. All things sanctify us. All things sanctify us. Sometimes we're sanctified by going through difficult storms, and sometimes we're sanctified by having to deal with success and blessing. How, how are you responding to that in a Christ-glorifying way? If you have two choices, uh, always choose the most difficult thing because it's better for your sanctification. That could be true, but not always true. There's many other factors to consider, but it is true we will end up in storms. Don't be surprised. When Jesus got in the boat and said, we're going to the other side, he went to sleep. He knew a storm was coming. That's okay. I would just hit 
This is the special music portion of the program. We <laughs> just start singing. <laughs> All right. Now we just have background music. I'm, I'm off, so I don't know. I'll just talk really loud. How about that? Um, secondly, we can't. This is a storm, right? So how are we going to respond? We can pray boldly and rest peacefully. Second, we will face storms. Secondly, we can pray boldly and rest peacefully. That doesn't mean in the storm we have to be idle or passive or, or defeatist, right? I have to go through storms. There's no way out. Nothing I can do. Just got to suck it up and endure. And you're miserable. And everybody around you can tell you're miserable and you're making them miserable because you're just kind of defeatist about the whole thing. And Christians who live out that mentality are not glorifying Christ. The disciples were rebuked for their lack of faith because they questioned his care for them when he already told them the plan. They weren't rebuked for asking for help. One of the primary purposes of the storms that our Father leads us through is to create dependence in Him. It is for us to go to Him. Like, that's why we're part of the reason we go through storms. So you will come to me, that you will depend on me, that you will trust me, that you will ask me for help. Like, we are bent as humans, especially as Americans, to be independent. I don't need anybody. I don't need God. I can do it on my own. And God is always working to crush that, to bring us to him. And so that's part of the purpose of the storms, that we come to him with confidence and boldness to ask for anything. And maybe, maybe we get a miracle. Maybe the storm is turned off like a faucet. It's okay to pray for that. It's okay to pray for God to do amazing miracles. He can still do them. It's okay to pray for your child to be healed miraculously. It's okay to pray for God to instantly change a person's heart. It's okay to pray, and we should pray for God to save and radically transform people that are making our life difficult. Pray and believe God can do the seemingly impossible. He's God. He's God. He can do things we can't do. So ask Him boldly with confidence for Him to to work in powerful ways. His power is only limited by His will and desire. That's it. He can do anything according to his will, according to his character, according to his attributes and desire. So believe and pray boldly. We need to pray in such a way that we actually believe God has power. The power to change us, the power to change our circumstances. Like Just, just think about it in the context of what we've been studying in the parables the last couple of weeks. That, that we are called to go and scatter the seed of the gospel and believe that there is fertile soil out there that will receive the word of the gospel and be transformed by the gospel and come alive and become new creations of Christ. So we sit here in this room and we hear this. Oh, we've got to go scatter the seed of the gospel. God's kingdom is growing. We know it's going to happen. Let's go out with boldness and just scatter the gospel far and wide. And then we go to work. And there's this person that we need to talk to. And all of a sudden it's like, eh, what do I say? What are they going to say? I don't know what to do. Like, I've already experienced this tension since we've been going through this passage and 10,000 times before. In that moment, believe the power of God that calmed the storm will empower you to speak the gospel to them and amazing things can happen. Maybe you do fall on your face and that's okay because that's going to humble you and create more dependence in you on him. Maybe, maybe they hear the gospel and come alive in Christ. Hello. 
and they are transformed. Believe that God has the power to do the amazing things as we scatter the seed of the gospel in our city. Just because we live in a context where everybody's a Christian doesn't mean we're not going to see fruit when we share the gospel. And so pray and believe that kind of power. Believe God has amazing power in your storm and pray boldly. If your storm would cease, if God would do a miracle, ask him, not because you don't think he cares for you, but because you know he cares for you. And if, you say, if he says no, or if you're waiting, don't be crushed. Don't be crushed. If his plans and desires for us are greater than a miracle to stop the storm, and so we endure the storm, we cannot be crushed because we know our Father in heaven will give us all the grace and the strength we need. Why? Because he's in the boat with us. He's with us. We have him. And that's far greater than just having the storm ceased. We have him with us. And so we can rest. We can rest as Jesus rested, who wasn't worried about the storm. We rest not because the storm has ceased, but because we have him in the storm. Even if he does a miracle and the storm ends, we rest not because the storm ended, but because we still have him. Like you're praying for something to stop, you're praying for God to take away a situation, and and he does, and it's better. Oh, well, he's going to do that all the time. Not necessarily, probably not. He was gracious to do that at that time. You still have him. Pray boldly, rest peacefully in the middle of the storm. You have him. He is enough. That's the point of Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a storm. It's a lot of storm there. That's, that's tough. That's what these believers, written to believers in Rome, it's Romans, same, same people who heard the gospel of Mark. It's what they were going through. Who's going to separate us? Can all that bad stuff separate us? No, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have him. We never lose him. No one ever takes him away. Nobody ever takes us away from him. Nothing, no one. We pray boldly, but we rest trusting his will. And then thirdly, we can trust his love and his care for us. So we know that we're going to be in storms. We pray boldly and we rest. And thirdly, we can trust his love and his care for us. It's this never stopping, never giving up, and breaking always and forever love of God for us that helps us trust his love and care for us. So we don't have to question if he cares. All we have to do is look to Jesus and the cross and we know he cares. I think it's Tim Keller who, who said about this passage, the disciples asked Jesus, don't you care we're perishing? And Jesus rightly could have said to them, don't you care I'm going to perish for you? I don't know if you've been through a storm that brought you to this point of questioning if he cares for you, if your father loves you. We were there, been there many times in our marriage, but not quite two years ago, Jennifer and I were, were wondering. You know, we know the theological truth, right? We could pass the test. We know God cares. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Check. But we were saying at that time, it doesn't feel like our Father cares for us. It was a low point that was partly necessary because he wanted to grow our trust in him, but it was also a rebuke for me because I was being so short-sighted, not trusting him. 
felt like there was only one way out of the storm we were in. I had it, I had it planned out. Why don't you just ask me what to do, God? I know the steps that need to be taken. And he graciously, as a good father does, humbled me. And said, I have power to do things and plans to do things you don't even, you don't have a clue about, Jared. So especially for people who like to plan and organize, God loves to do this. You, you think you're going to plan out the will of God, organize the will of God? Ha ha. I'm going to take you through things that will humble you and crush your plans and organization. And put your trust in me and not your plans. The account of this miracle has been rightly seen as a parallel with the gospel of Jonah, or the story of Jonah, rather. There's a storm, there's scared sailors, Jonah's asleep in the bottom, the captain comes down and rebukes Jonah for sleeping and not caring, not doing anything. Jonah wakes up, he finally gives a solution, throw me in, and they do it, and the storm immediately stops, just like this storm. The sailors respond in fear and awe at the one true God and his power. And Jesus himself said, I am the greater Jonah. And the sea stopped this time, not because Jesus was thrown into the sea, but by the word of his power. But Jesus also knew there's a greater storm coming, a storm that had been brewing since Genesis 3. The storm that is the wrath of God against sin. And like Jonah, Jesus could only calm the storm by not speaking a word, but by throwing himself into the storm. Absorbing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners like these disciples who questioned his care and like us. We do the same. And when you consider all that Jesus has done for us to have life and forgiveness and hope and joy and peace with him, why would we question his care for us? Romans 8, 31 through 35, the passage preceding the other one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is how much your father cares about you. He didn't spare his son. He gave his greatest gift. And if you're trusting him for that, you're trusting him for salvation and eternity, how much more can we trust him for all things, everything else we need, that he also will graciously give us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us right now. This same Jesus, next to the Father, interceding for you. This is the hope of Romans 8, written to Christians in Rome, just like Mark going through storms and tribulations and persecution, and it's the hope for us today. You have his love. No storm can separate you from his love. He's always with you in the storm. And because of his amazing power and amazing love, we can pray boldly for the storm to cease, and we can rest peacefully because more than likely it won't. More than likely he's going to bring us through it. But no one, no one loves and cares for you more than he does. He will never leave you nor forsake you as he walks with you every step of the way. So a couple questions just to kind of spur your thinking during this time of reflection. Do you see the storm that you're in as a gift of your Father's sovereign will that is working always for your good and his glory? Can you come to a point where you see the storm? Father, this storm stinks. 
but you're good. And I know you can take all things and work them for my good and your glory. Do you see that? Can you confess that this morning? Are you resting in him and experiencing his peace and joy in the storm while you pray boldly? So is it not just something theologically you've affirmed, but has he brought you to a place where you're experiencing this truth, this peace? Because your trust in him is so great. Thirdly, are you believing and trusting his love and care for you to go with you through the storm? Or do you have this tendency to run away from him in the storm? Do you run to him in the storm or you run away from him? Know his love and care for you is infinite. And then fourthly, are you praying boldly for God to demonstrate his power in mighty ways in your life through this storm? Or you just want to get out? Just get me out of the storm. Or... God do mighty things through my life in the middle of the storm. We're going to have prayer in a second. And then as we always do, we'll have communion after a time of uh, prayer and reflection. And if you're a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in this ancient meal that celebrates the life and death of Jesus. Um, but take this time between now and then to, to, to do work with the Lord, to let the Lord work on you and speak to your heart as you respond in repentance and faith. Father, we are grateful for Jesus. We're so thankful that right now he's interceding for us. That his power is not limited by time or distance. The same Jesus who did this amazing miracle then can do miracles today. So we ask for that. God, we believe that there are times where you can do miracles and demonstrate your glory and spread your name and fame in our lives and in this city in great ways. And so we ask for for you to do miracles in the mess that some of us are in this morning, that you would instantly change somebody, that you would instantly change our circumstance. We ask for that, but, but ultimately, Father, we submit to your will. You know what's best. So if you want to keep walking with us, giving us all the grace we need every day, the strength we need because you're with us every day, then we will walk with you. Father, I pray for anyone who's here who has trouble saying that, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them and encourage them to bring life where there's not life, where there's bring hope where there's not hope, bring faith where there's not faith. And Father, maybe bring salvation where there's not salvation. Father, encourage us this morning, convict us this morning, challenge us this morning for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.